I need to begin with a couple of apologies. Um, firstly, I need to apologise to you, the audience. Um, you have patiently listened to nine lessons. You've taken in probably about as much as you can. You're pretty much near your fill. Um, you can see ten-pin bowling just over the horizon. It's, it's very close. Um, but I was given the topic of eternity, and I was not quite sure if that was the time frame as well that I was given, or if it just feels like the eternity for you as the audience, but we'll see how we go. Um, I also need to apologise to the organisers of the lectureship committee. I normally attend the meetings of the organising committee for the lectureship. Um, for whatever reason, I didn't attend the meeting this year. And so in my absence, I was given a lesson to give for the lectureship. So whatever lessons you remember throughout all this, and I've seen so many people taking copious notes and really drinking in a lot, but just remember above all of those other lessons, turn up to the meetings. <laughs> You never know what you get given in your absence, because not only was I given a lesson, but I was given the last lesson. So I've had all weekend to anxiously think about the lesson. This is the first lesson that I've actually given at a lectureship, so clearly they're giving the rookie things to do. Not only was it the last lecture, but it's a lesson about eternity and the second coming through to eternity, which, as Aaron said, is kind of difficult to comprehend, difficult to get your head around, is not without controversy. Not only that, but the text that I was given was Revelation to cover. And so, again, Revelation is not exactly known for its ease of exegesis. And not only that, but they decided to give me Revelation to teach in front of some of the best biblical scholars that we have in this region. And so, whatever I did to the organising committee, who include my father and my best friends, I'm sorry, I'll... I'll turn up next year, I'm sure. But it's okay. It's okay because this lesson is the best bit. This lesson is actually the bit you've been waiting for because this lesson is about you. This lesson is where we get to be inserted into the picture, where we get to be one of those tiles on the mosaic for much of the lectureship and indeed we started with um, Jesus Christ and clearly it's a, a dominant part of um, what we're looking at and through Daniel's mixed metaphors we're now moving the spotlight of the play on the stage across to uh, another part and Jesus Christ doesn't recede in importance at all but now we're, we're shifting the focus, we're shifting the focus more to us and we're, we're shifting it to a bigger part of the mosaic. We're shifting the part to eternity. And this particular um, representation of the word eternity here, some of you might recognise, is um, in the really um, copper plate script of a fellow by the name of uh, Arthur Stace. And Arthur Stace, this is um, um, at the Sydney uh, Town Hall, and it's to represent what Arthur Stace did. And so Arthur Stace uh, was uh, an illiterate former soldier. He was uh, a petty criminal. He was an alcoholic uh, in the, the 20s and 30s in, um, in Sydney. And in the early 1940s, he was um, converted to Christ. 
And um, Rick was relaying some of the story to me yesterday, and he was saying that um, he heard a lesson about eternity, and he heard a second lesson about eternity, and he thought that this was such an important topic, it was such a, a crucial thing to let people know about, um, that he wanted to share this message. How does an illiterate man share this message? So he learnt how to write this word. And so for the next, um, right into the, the 1960s, he wrote this word. He wrote this word around Sydney. He wrote this word um, really as graffiti tagging <laughs> to a degree. Um, it's become much more famous than that, but um, it's believed that he may have written this word over 500,000 times around Sydney in walkways in all sorts of areas because this was how important this word, this topic, this theme was to him and he felt like it needed to be to, to his community. Um, I believe there are only um, two um, actual, you know, his writing left. Uh, one of those, it was given on a letter to a fellow parishioner, and that's now in the uh, National Museum, I believe, in Canberra. And the other one is inside the clock tower at the GPO in Sydney. Um, if you want an eyewitness, though, Rick um, said that he was able to see one at the, um, the show, uh, the Royal Easter Show in Sydney. So it's kind of a weird irony that eternity keeps disappearing around Sydney, so I'll let you figure out all of the, the physics of that. But, um, of course, it was made famous again on New Year's uh, Eve in Sydney when they lit up that word on the, the, the Harbour Bridge there and I think incorporated it into the Olympics as well. Um, but just to, to capture how important um, this theme is, 500,000 times he kept writing it around town. Not everyone is so enamoured of the idea of eternity. Not everyone is so convinced of it. Um, any excuse to show photos of Larissa and I travelling around Australia and wistfully remind ourselves of where we were this time last year. While we were travelling around, we listened to podcasts, um, occasionally you know, Daniel's lessons, but other stuff as well. Um, and we listened to one called Willosophy. And it's a comedian named Will who interviews other people. I wouldn't recommend his comedy work, but um, interesting you know, interviews with other people, some well-known, some not so well-known, um, but talking about what their philosophy of, of life is. And in all of the interviews, towards the end, he always asks the person, um, so what do you think happens when you die? What do you think you know, it's all about? And 98% of the interviewees say, you just die. That's just it. That there is no afterlife, nothing beyond that. And it's, it's kind of shocking. I mean, if we polled this audience, I think it would be 98% or more the other way, I'm pretty sure. And that's you know, who we're familiar with. And so it's quite confronting where you know, people, um, a, a large proportion of our fellow travellers in the world, don't think about eternity the same way that you and I do, the same way um, the Bible presents it. Somewhere in the middle is William Shakespeare. William Shakespeare, um, one of his most famous plays, although it's probably few that are not, and probably his most famous soliloquy, uh, a monologue, 
um, where he has Hamlet saying to be or not to be, questioning the very idea of, of existence. And, and partway through um, this famous speech, beginning to be or not to be, that is the question. He has um, Hamlet capture in a couple of lines, I think, what the great question is that we must all face. He says, to die, to sleep, to sleep, perchance to dream. Aye, there's the rub. For in that sleep of death, what dreams may come, when we have shuffled off this mortal coil, must give us pause. It should, shouldn't it? It should give us pause. We should be considering these questions. What dreams may come when we've shuffled off this mortal coil? It'll come as no surprise to you, I'm sure, but this body of mine is temporary. It is unreliable. It has an expiry date. As Daniel read, as I wrote about myself, and he read and wrote and talked about me, talking about me, um, I work in a hospital setting. Um, the hospital has a mortuary. I work in biomedical literature, descriptions of diseases and interventions for diseases. Um, no one has a full count, but there's at least 14,000 different diseases um, that have been you know, distinguished and their pathologies catalogued. 14,000 different ways your body can go wrong, at least. The literature that I search, one database alone, it has 25 million references in it. They add about 800,000 references each year to that database. That's an awful lot of work being poured into this idea that our bodies are sick and we keep trying to stave it off. We keep trying to kick it down the can. But that mortuary gets used. I don't say that you know, glibly, gleefully. It's with great mourning. Um, but that doesn't take away from the truth of it. And of course, we know this from the Bible, don't we? We know that the Bible makes clear Genesis 3.19, Ecclesiastes 3.20, they both remind me that I am dust and I return to dust. And it's true. James 4.14 is similarly um, depressing, if you like, or realistic, if you like. He says, my life's a vapour. It's here and it's gone. You can almost see through, you know, We've been talking about this big picture, this whole sweep of, of time and you know, even outside of eternity, even the fixed time that we have here in this life. I'm a vapour, I'm here and I'm gone. The fact is also that the Bible makes it equally clear I'm not simply an animal, I'm not simply flesh and bone. Jerry Seinfeld used to tell a joke about, you know, if an alien came to Earth and he saw us walking around behind dogs picking up after them, he'd have to question who actually is in charge of the planet here. But you know, I think as Daniel said in the first lesson, you look into the eyes of a puppy dog and you don't see a soul. There isn't something different there. But 
You know, the fact is that I am more than the sum of my physical parts. That I have a soul and it is eternal. It's a really crucial thing to get. And as we've discussed, not everybody accepts that. But the Bible makes it abundantly clear that I have a soul and that it is eternal. I won't go through all of the verses there. They're in the, um, the packs as well. But all of these verses, and I'm sure more besides, make this simple fact plain that there is something spiritual to us. There is something that returns. There is something that extends beyond the grave. Many may doubt or dispute or disregard this, but I think part of faith is a conviction of this elemental fact that I have a unique soul and an assurance that there is an eternal realm beyond this sort of sensory perception world that we have, beyond the, the fixes of, of time, of physics, of, of biology. And it's really important to accept these truths, not only in and of themselves, but because further consequences follow, don't they? The fact is, not only do I have a soul, but that soul is judged. And not just Russell Crowe's soul that gets judged. And I don't recommend using Russell Crowe as your moral guide to life or you know, referring to him a lot for biblical studies. But um, you'll recall that, um, perhaps you'll recall Russell Crowe's character. Um, I need to explain too to Trevor that whenever Russell Crowe does something great, that he's Australia's Russell Crowe. But whenever he you know, hits people with telephones, he's New Zealand's Russell Crowe. So as long as we're all aware of that. But his script writers for the movie Gladiator, in part, they say, Brothers, what we do in life echoes in eternity. And just, it's you know, set up for Russell Crowe going full Russell Crowe and really giving it the full bore. But it's not an untrue statement, is it? What we do here and now echoes in eternity. I have a soul and that soul will be judged. And it will be judged with eternal consequences. There are alternate outcomes available for myself. And those outcomes will come beyond the grave. And they're stark in contrast. They go in polar opposite directions. And they aren't yet determined. They're not fixed at birth. They're not fixed before birth. They can and will change based on what I do in the here and now. They're impacted by the choices that I make in this life. And so if I reject the very idea that I have a soul, that there is an eternal life beyond the grave, well, what do I care? Live for the here and now. Do whatever. Beat out the other person. Make sure that you get your fill. But if I accept that I have a soul, and there's an eternal life, and that my soul is judged, that changes the dynamic, doesn't it? It changes how I live. And so I probably need to be thinking about these things. I need to have that pause and consider. Again, the Bible is clear. The Bible is consistent about this. It isn't just one verse tucked away somewhere. Again and again and again. God's 
plan, this whole scheme that we've been trying to get our heads around this weekend, tries to centre in on these facts. Daniel 12.2 reads simply, Many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. In Matthew 25, Jesus uses three separate analogies. That of attendance at a wedding, that of three men being given um, sums of, of money to invest, and of sheep and goats being separated. All of these trying to highlight in different ways the important link between preparation in the here and now and how that will pay off. How that that preparation, that activity that we do will affect outcomes in the next. Jesus makes this even more plain in in Luke 16 where he contrasts the experiences of of two men. One was simply called the rich man, the other referred to as as Lazarus. And and Jesus teaching surely as, as explicitly as possible that Um, the experiences, the rewards versus um, the really horrendous things to experience in this life, and the rewards with the rich man, the difficulties um, with the much poorer man. And yet, in the next, these things are reversed. The rich man were um, led to understand, has led an unrighteous life, the much poorer man, um, you know, sores, boils, all of these things, um, hunger in this life. And yet in the next life we see him comforted and we see um, the rich and righteous man um, tortured, just wanting some relief, something, a cup of water, wanting to warn those back on earth, hey, this is real, take it seriously, eternal life is here. What you do in this life matters. He's told they know that. They have Moses, they have the prophets, they have God's word, they have the message delivered. It matters. Paul and Barnabas knew this and they explained to their audience in Acts 13 verses 46 to 48. It was necessary that the word of God should be spoken to you first But since you reject it and judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life, behold, we turn to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us. I have set you as a light to the Gentiles, that you should be for salvation to the ends of the earth. Now when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord. And as many had been appointed to eternal life, believed." Paul revisits this same theme in Romans 2, 5 to 8. He says, But in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who, it says, will render to each one according to his deeds eternal life to those who by patient continuous in doing good seek for glory, honour, and immortality, but to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation, and wrath. Again, stark contrasts 
stark contrasts that are impacted by what I do now and that have not just echoes but have very real, very determined consequences. And God is telling us we cannot pretend that we do not know this message, that we do not know the outcomes. And a lot of people find that uncomfortable. A lot of people find it uncomfortable that, I think Ian spoke this morning about the black and white nature of God, the black and white nature of these judgments that he is able to make. And so instead of accepting that these things are so and doing something about them, we try to change God. He's not going to be that determined, is he? I mean, I know we're going different paths, but we're all going to end up in the same place, aren't we? You've heard these things. I don't know, but from everything I've read there, it doesn't seem like that, does it? It seems like the different paths are much more stark than what we might be comfortable with. But my soul being judged does not have to be tortuous. It doesn't have to be terrifying. We don't have to go and change everything else because we find that troubling. The fact is that God wants my soul. God wants me back with him. And again, far more eloquently than I can ever speak, we heard this morning about this reconciliation that God wants for each and every one of us. He wants for me. I don't deserve it. But there it is. Second Peter three nine says that God is long suffering. He's long suffering towards me. Doesn't have a sort of Damocles over and the moment I step out of line, that's it. We're all done. Rather he's patient, he's willing to forgive, he's willing to show grace, he's willing to show mercy. We're told, not willing that I, not willing that any of us should perish. Remember, we're inserted into this big picture now. This is about me, which makes it real. And God's not willing that I should perish. But he wants me, he wants everyone to turn back to him. He wants us to come back. He wants my soul in eternity with him. He hasn't made it impossible to find. He's not a capricious God like the, the Greek and Roman gods where you're not really sure what you're going to get and you know, random lightning bolts, all of these sorts of ideas. God is open. God is transparent. God has given to us everything we need to know. That's why you've been here for three days, surely. Because as good as the food is, as good as the accommodation is, it's this stuff that we want to know about, this stuff that's important. The fact is that there are alternate endings to our life. And the Bible describes very clearly for us hell and all of its suffering and makes it as graphic and as you know, undesirable as possible. But God is equally absolute in making it clear that he wants my soul to be with him in eternal life. He doesn't want it in eternal punishment. Eternal life is promised. 1 John 2.25 tells us that. Titus 
3.7, we're told that it's like that we're heirs to a, a promise, an inheritance, that it's there. We will receive it, providing that we're children of God. Hebrews um, 11.13 to 16 refers it to like a, a home that's waiting for us. That we kind of see it afar off and we can get there and we should get there. Christ prayed for it in his famous prayer in John 17. He prayed for eternal life for us. Not only is it promised and prayed for, but it's paid for. Even better deal, hey? Again, we've spoken about this already, but to, to mash up the verses. You know, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. It's not a cliche through repetition. The power and the glory, the importance of that verse surely continues to resonate. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Why would he do that if he didn't want us back? The Son, we're told in Philippians, again, a really majestic description here. Philippians um, chapter 2. The Son was in the form of God, but he made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant, and came in the likeness of man and humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. That's what it took to win us back. And he paid it. And so, as a result, John's able to tell us that God has given us eternal life. And this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. Can it be any plainer? Can that picture meld together and form anything more beautiful, anything more important. And we're told that eternal life is prized. Eternal life is worth it. Eternal life is something that we should be not only thinking about, but orientating all our life towards. Again, any number of verses, but you know, it's described as being incorruptible. It's described as a victory in 1 Corinthians. Revelation, again, pointing more towards these things. It's described as a crown of life. In the last two chapters of the Bible, Revelation 21 and 22, we have this description of a, a new Jerusalem. And again, I'm not going to wade too much into you know, delicate waters. Um, there's others that can do a much better job, but... God himself is, is saying that he will be with his people and be their God. He says there'll be no dying. He says there'll be no crying. He says there'll be no sorrow. He says there'll be no pain. He describes a, a place of unimaginable beauty and, and wealth. He describes a place of light with no night, a place of, of purity, a, a new tree of life that's there. We have the tree of life 
at the beginning that causes so many, it's not the cause, but it ends up so many troubles. And yet we see at the end this reward available, this new tree of life described in so much better circumstances. It's where nations are healed and and there'll be no more curse. It's a place where the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be. And his servants shall serve him and they shall reign forever and ever. I don't know about you, but that's kind of a place that's worth my attention, surely. That's worth humbling myself, that's worth accepting all that God has put before us and all that he has explained. A place with no pain, a place with no crying, a place with no curse, a place of of light, a place where God is. I mean, this, this is the accomplishment of the big picture. This is what we've been talking about this whole weekend. What everybody on James Street who drove past the the poster and didn't come here is missing out on. It's the accomplishment of God's scarlet thread of redemption that winds its way through human history. God, existing in eternity, created the perfect world which was marked by the fall. God then promises to Abraham about a people and a plan to bless all the nations of the earth. The descendants of Abraham experience deliverance from slavery, a foreshadowing of true spiritual deliverance. Upon entering the promised lands, the story is dominated by disobedience, eventually ending in exile. However, through his mercy, God returns a remnant from exile to fulfill his promises. The story culminates in the good news that Jesus came to earth. He died for our sins, paying the price of redemption. After ascending to heaven, the church age begins and true reconciliation with God is finally possible. And the story ends with eternity with God. And so now I sit down. Except there's a couple more paragraphs left and then food, and then bowling, and then it's all good. Because what good is a story that's not read? What good is a big picture that's not seen? What's good about great physician whose appointments aren't kept? What good is the bread of life if it's never eaten? What good is a knocked door that's never answered? What's my response to this eternal life that's been promised, prayed for, paid for, and is clearly so dearly prized and is plainly available? This next bit's up to me. This next bit's my response. As with Hamlet, what lies beyond the grave must give me pause. I can't let the immediate things of this life crowd out the important things of this life. There will always be an immediate thing. 
But as Jesus reminds us again and again, we may not have time to address the important things. And so am I like those who were stoning Stephen? Maybe not in actions, but in attitude. Am I gnashing my teeth at God's message, at God's admonishment? Am I aggressive towards God's word, unwilling to let it bend my will? Or am I like those in Laodicea? I just don't care. I kind of hear what you're saying, but I can't be bothered. I don't want to show commitment. I don't want to make any firm decisions. Maybe, maybe not. I don't know. I heard someone describe themselves the other day as 60% atheist, 40% agnostic. So I'll let you determine how that's worked out. Well, am I like those who first heard the gospel, urgently wanting to know, what shall we do? What shall I do? What needs to be my response? Am I like the Ethiopian treasurer who has explained salvation and straight away he says, hey, here's water. What's preventing me? What do I need to do? I want this. I want what you have told me about. This baptism, which isn't a removal of dirt from the flesh, it's not something physical. It is that we do it physically, but the purpose isn't to clean the physical body. What would be the point? It's going back to dust. Rather, it's an appeal to God for a clean conscience. That's what I want. It's putting on of a, a new man that was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. That's the type of person that ends up in such a place so prized. A baptism which links us to Christ's death and therefore to Christ's resurrection and therefore makes us alive to God. Romans 6 tells us. So I need to choose. I'm in the picture whether I like it or not. I have a soul. It is eternal. It will be judged. Those things are fixed. The wages of my sins are death. That's fixed too. But the best joining here, God's free gift through Christ is eternal life. Message repeated 500,000 times in graffiti around Sydney. God's free gift is eternal life. I need to choose hope over despair. I need to choose reward over punishment. I need to choose life over death. I need to be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord knowing that my labour is not in vain in the Lord. I know all the visitors know this, but there's an awful lot of work that goes into these events, an awful lot of work to make the building clean, to have clean plates to eat on, the food, it just appears. But that work is not in vain, brethren. That work, year after year, saddle up, 
prod people to turn up to the meetings. It's important because it means that we hear these messages. These messages like 1 Timothy 6.12 which says that I need to fight the good fight of faith. Why? So I can lay hold on eternal life. Thanks very much.